So welcome everybody to Euro 30 as the common currency finally grown up. Um, my name is Angelo Martelli and I'm an assistant professor in uh, European International Political Economy at the European Institute. Um, this event uh, not only marks uh, almost 30 years since the Maastricht Treaty laid the foundations for the European Union as we know it today, but um, on a smaller scale and uh, closer to us, uh, we also celebrate the 30th anniversary of the LSE European Institute, uh, 30 years which have turned our department into a leading center, uh, the forefront of study and research on Europe, in UK and for Europe in the world. The exceptional panel this afternoon um, is the first in a program of exciting anniversary events taking place over the next weeks and months for which you can find more information on our webpage. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSEEI30. And uh, the podcast will be, making, will be made available. Uh, hopefully there will be no technical difficulties or, or outages as we have experienced in the last week. Um, and will be made available shortly after this event. Um, so uh, the Maastricht Treaty significantly increased cooperation between uh, European countries in a number of new areas, from freedom of movement uh, with a European citizenship to common foreign and security policy to justice and home affairs, but it also paved the way for the creation of a single currency, the euro. Indeed, the treaty envisioned a three-stage transition process culminating in 1999 with the gradual introduction of the euro together with the implementation of a single monetary policy for which the ECB is responsible with the main objective to maintain price stability and thus safeguard the value of the euro. Since then, and as the former ECB president Raghi remembered a couple of years ago, actually on the 20th anniversary of the launch of the euro, we have had two decades uh, where, which were rather exceptional. The first was the culmination of a 30-year upswing in the global financial cycle, while the second saw the worst and economic and financial crisis since the 1930s. And looking at the past two years, I would add uh, with, with certainly even more unique events happening since then. Draghi in his speech continued by saying that the monetary union has succeeded in many ways, but it has not delivered the gains that were expected in all countries. This is partly the result of domestic policy choices and partly the result of monetary union being incomplete, which led to insufficient stabilization during the crisis. So the way ahead, is to identify the changes that are necessary to make our monetary union work for the benefits of all member countries. So to discuss the fate of the common currency, I am joined today by three eminent experts that I have the pleasure and honor to introduce. I'll introduce them in order of the introductory remarks that they will give. First one is Valtraud Schelkle. She's a professor in political economy at the European Institute and has been at the LSC since 2001. She's also an adjunct professor of economics at the economics department for the Free University of Berlin. Paul de Graue is the John Paulson Chair in European Political Economy at the LSC European Institute. Prior to joining the LSC, was Professor of International Economics at the University of Louvain in Belgium. He was also a member of the Belgian Parliament from 1991 to 2003. And uh, then we have Martin Wolf. He's the Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times. He was awarded CB in 2000 for services to financial journalism. And he was also a member of the UK 
government's independent commission on banking between June 2010 and September 2010. So the way we will proceed is the following. We will have first a round of brief introductory remarks by our distinguished speakers in uh, answering the question which gives the title to the event. And we will then focus on more specific issues. Um, let me remind you that you will have ample time for your questions. So start using the Q&A function, add your affiliation and to whom the question is directed or if it is to the entire panel. So um, without further ado, let me turn to our panel and uh, starting with uh, Professor Schelkle. So Baltrand, has the common currency finally grown up? I think it has. And it is exactly that the common currency, or rather its users, have grown up at 30. Well, I think at 20 it had not. Uh, they were fighting like some rowdy juveniles at the pub on Friday night. At 30, I think we can see that a system of reinsurance has emerged that is an alternative to a system of coinsurance. Coinsurance of state and federal schemes is typical for a federal state. Reinsurance is insurance or a backstop for insurers themselves, by which they typically cover tail risks, the possibility of very high losses that could wreck them. For example, health insurers, private health insurance often takes uh, reinsurance in case medical progress forces them to cover very costly uh, new treatments uh, through their contracts. And then they need to be reinsured because otherwise they could go bust. The insurers in the context that we are talking about now is the welfare states of member are the welfare states of member states um, and the euro area institutions reinsure them. But it started before the pandemic. Um, in the banking crisis since 2008, member states were first of all reinsured by the extraordinary interventions of the ECB as a lender of last resort. And contrary to what is often said, this helped not only the banks, although it helped them very much but also the savers who, held deposit, who had deposits in these banks, as well as the pension funds and life insurers with which households held policies. But this ECB lending could not help with pervasive solvency problems once you know, the dust settled a bit from the immediate crisis. So a bailout fund for sovereign debt, the European Stability Mechanism, ESM, and a single resolution fund for banks have been introduced. This uh, single resolution fund is way too small and therefore will be, uh, it is ultimately paid by the financial industry itself and will get the ESM, the European Stability Mechanism, as a backstop from next year onward. So you see that the reinsurer gets a reinsurance, uh, which is not unknown in private insurance as well. And finally, then during the pandemic last year, I think the EU introduced the reinsurance scheme for job retention schemes. Sure, it's called. And the recovery early for member states that were very hard hit and or poor to begin with. It is in the interest of all members that the recovery that is what the reinsurance payout makes more likely. This system in this system in which the parts complement each other was not designed by any identifiable collective of uh, EU decision makers. It's the outcome of piecemeal reforms under the pressure of an escalating crisis and the attempt to keep contingent liabilities invisible. Political economists should not be surprised by that. The US made its biggest advance in terms of financial monetary integration 
after devastating civil war in the second half of the 19th century. So, and here is my provocation for my co-panelists. I think a system of reinsurance makes perfect sense and is actually the more promising alternative to a centralized budget, given the state of Europe's political integration, the diversity of tax transfer states in the euro area, and the dismal experience with fiscal federalism all over the world, in particular in the, the next comparator, the United States. The EU as an experimental union resembles a human being who grows up exposed to many influences that do not follow a coherent plan. But in the end, voila, at some point, we find a recognizable individual that has a character and personality. And that's how I see the Experimental Monetary Union at 30. Thanks. Thank you very much, Walter, for these very interesting, at the same time, provocative for the others, Philips uh, that you have shared with us. Let me then turn to Paul to see if he responds to these criticisms and uh, uh, criticism, provocative thoughts and what he has to say about them. Okay. So thank you, Angelo. Uh, uh, you asked the question, has the euro finally grown up? So I answer like um, Valtaut, yes, it has grown up, but it is still far away from a healthy adult capable of withstanding all future shocks in particular, the climate change, to which I will return later, right? So to, to start out, let me uh, say the following. The, the euro, in a way, was born with a bird defect, right? Kind of weak immune system. We, we now know what that means, right? Uh, um, which I have been called the fragility of uh, the system, uh, which has arisen um, when governments that... Uh, used to be standalone prior to joining the monetary union, now found themselves in a monetary union uh, issuing bonds in a currency over which they had no control. And as a result, I could not guarantee to bondholders that these would always be repaid at maturity. And, and this created the potential for self-fulfilling crisis, liquidity crisis that could ultimately push these governments into default. And, and also into a bad equilibrium where they are forced to do austerity, all things that uh, we, we, we think governments should not do because especially these crises arise during uh, recessions, right? And, and this certainly contrasts with the situation they had before when they were standalone and, and could therefore give a guarantee that will always be repaid um, in the domestic currency. So the essence of the problem was, in fact, that national governments that used to be sovereign lost a significant uh, dimension of sovereignty, um, which had the effect that these sovereigns or governments um, could be brought down by financial markets. Right? They could be forced into default. Quite an extraordinary change in the balance of power, if you think that well, we, we tend to believe that when you are in a union, you are stronger. No, by being in, a, in the union, these governments had been weakened because they could be brought down by a financial market. And therefore, they needed support of some um, measure right, to, to be able to survive in, in such an environment. Now, um, this weakness that is, um, I've called this, this birth effect, was initially 
not really visible. Let, I want to show you now, share screen. I want to show you something. Um, just a second. Oops. Yeah, here it is. Uh, here I, I show you the um, yields, the government bond yields, 10 year starting in the year 2000, oh no, 1999, until 2021. And you can see that before the crisis, it, it looked like there was no problem at all. Um, financial markets really considered Greek bonds and, and German bonds to be perfect substitutes. Um, and, and, and they gave essentially the same risk to these bonds. Then things changed dramatically with the financial crisis, which was a, a huge shock and, and, and then revealed these weaknesses, right? That's what you see here, the yields of um, countries that typically also were hit more by the financial crisis, uh, shot up. And the yields of the others, um, Germany, the Netherlands, actually went, went down. So this destabilized the whole system and, and led to a situation where it was close to, to collapse, right? Um, but then when you get the post-crisis, and, and, and this leads me to, to, to my story, um, a number of things have happened, right? And that uh, also Walter to refer to, namely, uh, we, we set up a support system, right? Uh, these individual governments were unable to, to face these kinds of shocks and, and a mutual support system was set in place. In particular, the ECB, which is OMT, a land of last resort function, which was then also strengthened during the pandemic. Um, banking union, although incomplete, and some timid steps towards a fiscal union, especially with the next generation EU during the pandemic. And as you can see, when the pandemic hit, um, essentially, we did not have a repeat of the sovereign debt crisis. Although the pandemic had in itself um, given its size and in intensity and also its asymmetry, all the uh, potential to create a new sovereign debt crisis. So this did not happen. So in other words, we had learned from what happened in the financial crisis and strengthened the system significantly. Let me show you um, the, the, the next um, little figure here where I have enlarged the same figure, um, so kind of blow up, and you can see that just prior to the start of the pandemic, the yields were declining. Then you had a, a small blow up in the yields that occurred essentially at the moment um, Lagarde came out saying that um, the ECB was not in the business of uh, controlling the, the, the spreads. But then with the PEPP program, um, this was sufficient to pacify. And we came out of this pandemic quite um, unscattered. So in other words, um, that's the grown-up story. We had grown up, um, strengthened the system such that um, it could um, weather the pandemic that, as I just said, had the potential to create a new sovereign debt crisis. Um, this leads me then to the, the question, but is the euro now a strong adult that can sustain a future shock? 
and I will analyze this in the second round when Angelo will ask me the correct question um, to, to deal with this. I'll certainly try to do my best. Um, interesting that both our speakers made references to the human body. Maybe the, the question led also to, to such a, a metaphor. Um, let me now turn to Martin to conclude this first round of uh, introductory remarks. Martin, you're muted. So I'm very honored to be part of this uh, group. And uh, I've been fascinated by what people have said. Um, I followed this story very closely. I was writing for the Financial Times throughout the Maastricht negotiations. I talked to everybody involved. I had long conversations with Carl Otto Pearl, for example, um, who did everything he could to stop it, uh, by the way. Um, but I won't talk about any of that now, uh, perhaps later. And I will just go through. I have also a few pictures, terrible vice of economists, and, uh, and get through as quickly as I can. So I will... Uh, I will try to uh, show, let me, um, right, so ignore the first page. Well, my answer as always, of course, is it's too soon to tell whether it's grown up. Um, all I would say is um, it has survived quite big tests, but it remains, as Paul said, fragile in my view and we can discuss this later. Um, what I want to cover is basically how I see the story so far in three charts. It's incredibly simple. And then what does the Eurozone need? What are the things that one might want to do with it? And this is going to be very headline and links with the questions. So the first question is, to me, is, well, if the Eurozone was so wonderful, how has it performed economically how is, as an aggregate group? I remember it was not not only the um, the single currency was introduced in the 90s, but also there was the single market program uh, uh, introduced a little earlier. And this was all intended to ensure that the euro, the EU did very well against the US. So this shows GDP per head relative to the US. The US, US you should imagine, it purchasing power parity, by the way, constant 2017 prices. Uh, the U.S. is 100 percent. Imagine the U.S. at 100 percent. The green line is the eurozone. The blue line, by the way, below it, next to it is the U.K. I thought that's fun. I'm going to ignore what happened during COVID because it's special. But uh, obviously the U.K. did terribly badly. The basic story is the eurozone started out at 80 percent of U.S. average GDP per head. It was still 80 percent in 2011. And before the pandemic hit, it uh, was had fallen by about five percentage points. And all of that happened during the eurozone crisis. Um, but by the way, the UK didn't do much better. So it was neither a real success nor in aggregate in that sense, a disaster. But it's fallen behind somewhat in average GDP bed. I stress that the US. Um, the the next chart, it's just, I think, more worrying is what's happened to relative GDP per head. Uh, and I'm just looking at 1999 and 2019, and Germany is 100%. So if you imagine there's a German line, Germany is 100%, it's the benchmark. And the red uh, column shows the relative GDP per head in 1999, and the purple column show the relative GDP per head in 2019. And the basic story 
is Southern Europe's done terribly relative to Northern Europe? Is that just because they're all incompetent, wicked, and stupid people, or is, is this something to do with the Eurozone? Um, uh, I think it has a lot to do, and I'll come with it, with the Eurozone, and I'll come to that in a second. Of these countries, obviously, the biggest disaster is Italy, whose GDP head has fallen from being close to Germany's in 1999, close to 100%, to uh, 78% now, and 20 years of relative decline. But even Spain, Portugal, and Greece, all of which you would have thought would be convergence countries, have actually been divergent. And I don't think that's an accident. I think the system is designed to benefit um, uh, the countries with saving surpluses. It's just inevitable that a system like this would work for the saving surplus countries. That's what I thought 30 years ago. And I think the, the evidence has supported that very strongly. And the final uh, slide basically support why I think this is so. It's what happens with balance of payments adjustment or the failure of capital flows, the failure of capital account integration. So if you look back at the current account pattern, which is just the net capital flow pattern, to a significant extent internal, but not only internal, within the Eurozone in 2007, and you look at 2017, you can see that the aggregate current account balance of the Eurozone was zero. There were huge capital current account surpluses in countries like Netherlands and Germany. Those were the most important. Um, those are the red columns. Um, and there were some huge current account deficits. Um, as basically the capital markets went crazy. We know this. And the Eurozone was very much part of it because, as Paul said, everybody thought all risks were the same. When the crisis hit, this is the purple line, there was essentially no external adjustment by the, by the surplus countries whatsoever. Uh, in fact, their surpluses grew, uh, but there was massive compression of demand by the deficit countries. And by uh, 2017, the Eurozone was in very substantial surplus, and basically every country in the Eurozone was in surplus. And that was a brutal macroeconomic adjustment, which occurred largely through spending compression, because there wasn't really very much relative price change within it. And that's exactly what I would have expected to happen, and it wasn't good. And it's related to what has just happened in terms of relative GDP bad within the eurozone so my view is that it's difficult to argue the eurozone as a whole beyond its survival which is a great achievement i think has been an economic success success in terms of relative growth macroeconomic stability or capital market integration um, fundamental failures of adjustment remains it's the needed wage flexibility does not exist you've lost current exchange rate flexibility and of course, fiscal transfers are very limited, and Valtraud referred to that for very obvious reasons. And a big part of the adjustment shock within the Eurozone has been externalized for somewhere else in the world to cope with it. But the ECB and the Eurozone have survived the crisis with a host of innovations, which I think are a membership, which are cred creditable, and membership has proved irreversible. So it's sort of semi-grown up. Finally, um, my second part, which will be quite brief, what does the Eurozone still need? And I think here it's very, really hard to separate the Eurozone from the EU because so many of the functions of the Eurozone are EU functions still. There's an inevitable overlap. But I think it is important that the EU and so the Eurozone has responded to COVID 
far more effectively than it did to the financial crisis. I think that's partly because nobody could really be blamed for it. So it didn't get into all that moralistic nonsense we got over the financial crisis. Climate change is not a challenge for the Eurozone per se. It is a challenge for the EU and member states. But the ECB can perhaps help a little. The most relevant form of inequality for the Eurozone is the divergence among states. And I think the fact that there are a significant number of states that are doing have done economically very badly is a big problem. And it's a problem for the Eurozone itself. The monetary, financial and fiscal systems clearly need developing And of the three, the second and third, which are connected, are crucial. I I do believe that you need not an insignificant amount of fiscal integration if you want financial integration. And I think both of the previous speakers have referred to it. It can survive, but can it really prosper? And to me, the big challenge is can the Eurozone and really all its its main um, members uh, prosper together? Thank you very much. Thanks to you, uh, Martin, for concluding this first round of uh, brief introductory remarks. Uh, we will now delve into more specific issues um, and uh, we'll uh, try to ask the right questions as Paul uh, uh, mentioned earlier. So I'll actually start with, uh, uh, with Paul. Um, Paul, you have written extensively and presented extensively on this idea of fragility. Um, and you have tried to, in a way, distill whether this um, fragility is endemic or temporary. What is your view on this? What's your answer? Uh, and uh, have the loopholes uh, of the architecture that you mentioned before uh, been addressed uh, or not? I'll have to ask you to unmute yourself, Paul. <laughs> oh, I always forget this. Uh, thank you for asking the right question, right? It, this, is, this reminds me of Charles de Gaulle in his famous press conferences. You know, I, I was a very young at that time, and I liked to watch his press conferences. And one day he started his press conferences, um, and he said, these are the questions that uh, I would like you to pose to me, and here are the answers. So this is similar, similar although I'm not Charles de Gaulle, of course, but um, I, I do think that uh, you asked the, the, the right question. So let me try to answer this, right, In, and, and reformulate the, the question as follows. Um, is, is the euro a healthy adult, right? So it has survived. Uh, so you can say, yeah, after 30 years, that's something, it has survived. Um, but is it healthy enough, capable of sustaining future shocks? Because let's face it, there will be future shocks, right? Uh, and and um, that, that's the question then now. Can, can, do we now have the architecture that allow us to go through further turbulence in the future? And here I would first want to concentrate on the ECB, right? The ECB, as I argued and as everybody knows, Um, has accepted its role of being the lender of last resort, not only for the banks, because that was accepted right from the start, but also in the government bond markets, right? This was the the innovation for the the ECB with with the OMT, right? And and, and the question is, um, uh, are we sure that this thing is there forever? Can can we be sure? 
is this OMT thing a credible um, announcement? And here we have a, a problem, which is the following, a contrast between standalone countries and the Eurozone. Take the UK and the Bank of England, UK government and the Bank of England. It is clear that if a crisis erupts and the UK government finds itself with a liquidity squeeze, the Bank of England will be there to provide liquidity so that financial markets cannot bring down the UK government, right? Because there is a superior force, the Bank of England, that will be forced to provide liquidity. There's no doubt about this. Nobody can doubt about this. Think, look at the, at the Eurozone. You have one central bank, the ECB, and 19 governments, none of which has control over the ECB. And therefore, this promise of OMT, of land of last resort, is not fully credible because it is at the discretion of the ECB in the future to do it. And we don't know who will be in there, right, in, at the ECB. None of these governments can actually force. There is a, one thing that adds to this um, lack of credibility, and that has to do with the fact that the OMT, although unlimited in its promise, is conditional on doing austerity which confuses liquidity and, and, and uh, solvency problems. The central bank should only intervene to provide liquidity when there is a liquidity crisis, but not if it is a solvency crisis. And yet the OMT confuses both, both dimensions right? by, by saying, okay, there will be unlimited support, but it will be conditional. And by being conditional, you create the impression, actually, this is to solve a solvency crisis. And this creates a possibility for the ECB in the future to say, sorry, this, this is a solvency crisis. And it actually happened already with the second Greek crisis. The ECB said, none of our business, it's a solvency problem. I will not provide liquidity, right? We have to do something different, um, restructuring and all that, which of course is true if it is a solvency crisis. But this ambiguity um, leads to uh, a lack of credibility. And therefore, we cannot be certain that ECB, when new severe shocks arise and, and individual governments have to be supported, will be ready to do so, right? So how can we solve this? Well, this can only be solved if, if we create some political authority that is on top of the ECB and can force that institution to do the, the job in times of crisis. But we are far from this, right? This is a, a kind of political union with, that is very intrusive and, and we don't have it. Therefore, we still have a problem there, right? It, it's, it's a grown up. The Eurozone is grown up. Yes, has survived the pandemic now because we did a number of right things, support systems, but we are not sure that when severe crises erupt again in the future, the same will happen. We don't know. And here I would like to connect with what Martin said. If it turns out that chronically the Eurozone delivers inferior microeconomic results, well, then the support, the political support for such a system will weaken. And, and, and as a result, uh, we, we might still have big, big problems in the future. So we, we are condemned 
um, so to say, to, to, to create. Um, a, so people have said the euro is a currency without a country, right? So we are condemned to create a country to be able to support in the long run um, the, the monetary system that actually today has no sovereign. In other words, we need to create a sovereign, right? Um, national governments, none of them are sovereign any longer, and we have not created a sovereign at the European level. And that remains a basic weakness of this architecture that, that we have created. Um, let me say just a, a few more things about fiscal union. This, it, it's clear that part of this uh, creation of a sovereign also implies creating a, a, a fiscal union. Uh, Waltraud, she, I, I, she uses the term reinsurance, but clearly uh, reinsurance, is, it, it's more than, say, reinsurance in private markets that we understand, right? Um, but um, I guess we want to do more than that because when prices erupt, insurance mechanisms in private markets collapse. We cannot rely on in private insurance mechanisms um, during crisis. We need political systems to do that. And you can call it reinsurance, which means creating a political institution at a Eurozone level that is capable of um, doing the necessary transfers, right, um, to, to support um, countries in times of crisis. And we have been trying to do that now with the next generation EU, which is a step in the right direction, but um, it's still relatively small. Um, and we will have to see whether we can go on in the direction that, that I think is inevitable if we want to make sure that this um, adult that uh, the Eurozone now is uh, remains one that is healthy enough to uh, support big shocks in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, so for the actually the LSC European uh, Institute students in the audience, this exchange will also be part of uh, uh, the course that actually Valtred and uh, Paul co-teach on the political economy of European monetary integration. So uh, you will hear more of the different views on this exchange in the uh, next months. Um, and it actually reminded me when I was actually a seminar teacher for that course uh, and uh, I asked the students, so what do you think is the job of a central bank? And everyone was saying, of course, changing uh, the interest rate uh, or, uh, for instance, supervising the financial sector and so on. And uh, what I, I actually wanted to hear is more they are in the business of credibility. Uh, and it's, I mean, credibility, as we have seen also, not just the ECB, but for many central banks, is the key in, in order to, uh, especially, you know, with the, some speeches, uh, how much, you know, the credibility of a central bank is key um, to change market sentiment and expectations. Um, but on these two points that were raised by, by Paul, uh, the role of the ECB and also, I uh, mentioned at the end, next generation EU, I would like to hear Valtred. So my question is, the sovereign debt crisis, in a way, highlighted how much the fate of the euro is linked to the actions of a strong central bank, the ECB. And when the pandemic struck, it seemed uh, we had a much faster reaction time. Um, so do you think as the shadow of the past, in a way, dictated the path? And uh, how much 
is the fate of the Eurozone actually linked to the one of the EU, as Martin was hinting at, uh, at earlier, especially in a way, in a forward-looking perspective, how much do you think with recent path-breaking decisions, for instance, RRF, uh, determine the future of the currency? Yes, uh, thank you. Before I answer your very good question, obviously, um, let me just briefly say two things, one to Paul and one to Martin. First of all, I do not think that we are at an end and at 30, you still develop and, and grow, right, in as a as a person so will the euro area but i think we really do need and therefore we at some point we have to go away from the metaphors and if we say what more is needed then the model is not become like the united states a full-fledged fiscal federation because there is our studies jonathan rodden eric ribbles are the the foremost scholars in this that just show how bad the United States works exactly because it has a strong center. And so the states recklessly free ride on the stabilization effort of the center, counteract the automatic stabilization of the central budget and, and are always, you know, the, um, the virtuous and, 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 and complain about this, the swamp and the debt management at the federal level, uh, while they totally depend for stabilization on that. So if you become a bit more political and don't just list the functional necessities of a fiscal federation, you would just see that when you introduce a federal budget, a central budget, there is a response from the states that can make the whole system worse. And this is my starting point. And this is why I think at the moment when you also can't just assume away that the demos of this future euro area fiscal union is not there and that people do not want neither those who would benefit at the moment that kind of control that then comes with it nor the others who feel they are the, the virtues and all that want to share the fiscal policy to that extent with a shared budget with other member states, and they have the support of a majority of their national populations with it. So we cannot ignore that. And therefore, I'm saying, what is then the next best thing, and perhaps even a better alternative than the US has at the moment, because it's, I think it's a dismal budgetary system, is a reinsurance for these tail risks, tail risks that are partly created by the euro area itself, namely through financial integration, for example. And then Martin Wolf, to say that the euro area was created to benefit Germany, designed to benefit Germany, then I would want to know why you think there is in Germany, exactly from these uh, people who, you know, mourn the good old Germany that's no longer there, that the, the resistance is there. They do not embrace the euro area. The fact is, Germany has done pretty well outside of the euro. Uh, deficit countries and surplus countries exist outside of the euro area. And what would have happened in this financial crisis is rampant financial crisis in those countries that the markets liked to pick up for good or bad reasons. Um, and therefore, I think what is now different is that countries like Germany and the Netherlands cannot walk away anymore from the mess that they partly create and that we too, we too agree. But they cannot walk away anymore and leave it to the IMF to get these countries back into the markets and then the, a new round starts. And that brings me then to the questions that uh, Angelo has asked me. I mean, in the beginning, I think the ECB did actually pretty badly. The ECB's very first reaction was like that of the EU's 
COVID interventions in the beginning gen generally. They tried their best and actually not all was wrong what they did, but they projected complete incompetence. I mean, Lagarde's famous press conference in which he says, we are not here to close the spreads. When that was the essence of what the ECB did rightly since 2010. And when she actually wanted to say, we close the spread if you member states as fiscal authorities take responsibility and help each other and intervene forcefully with fiscal stimulus or fiscal compensation mechanisms during this pandemic. But she said the opposite, right? Even the program that she, that she announced at that point was a fairly well thought out program. They now say we refinance and pay banks to lend on to businesses. So that was some innovation that there is some strings attached to this massive handout that happens and actually creates little more than a lot of instability in financial markets again. I think what was so remarkable about the last year in terms of EU crisis management is that there was this strong political pushback, especially from Italy and Spain, of not having the shadow of the past. You know, the ESM with strict conditionality and all that stuff dictate the future. In a contribution to a JCMS annual review, I, I actually traced this politics of path-breaking that Conte, Sanchez, and Nelson Macron, Macron engaged in. They insisted that this crisis is different, that citizens of countries in dire straits expect better from other member states than being lectured about their duties, and that a common debt instrument is now required. They made the use of the ASM with conditionality a taboo. And with that, uh, Paul, I also think the OMT is off the table. Um, it was, I think, more the silence from Germany when the OMT was announced that created this effect, not the OMT itself. It, is, it wasn't usable before and it is not usable now, especially. And so these governments from Southern Europe, in particular from the two big Southern European countries, played a risky game, but they won. And Italy in particular made it clear that if its government does not cooperate, the European stability mechanism, as this officially dubbed firewall, will not work for those on the safe side of the firewall either. And Merkel understood this. And she also understood that if she wants to end the corona bonds debate, you know, this common debt instrument, she must offer something astounding. As she herself said, I think after a press conference with Sanchez, Something massive beyond the numbers is necessary, something that is a political signal of solidarity. And that was what the Franco-German proposal for a recovery fund of 500 billion euros of grants was about. It was completely unexpected in the Commission. Nobody knew about this. But it changed the political economy of doing fiscal integration without going all the way to a central budget all along. And then to come back to your second question, uh, Angelo, of whether this is a sign that the fate of the euro area is linked to that of the EU. Yes, and it has, it is, but that's a given and always has been. More immediately, I think, however, that it suited Merkel enormously to make this an EU rather than a euro area reform. Above all, to deflect from a euro bond debate but also because the Eurobond would have only been for Euro area countries, but also to send a signal to non-Euro area members that the non-Euro members that one wants them to be in that, because she has understood that Brexit was a warning sign. What can happen if one is not aware of the sensitivities of countries outside of the Euro area. And therefore 
this was an entirely politically driven uh, uh, reform process. But I think in the end, it made a lot of sense, even in economic terms. Thank you very much, Waltraud. Um, I think you have raised also some of the points that will be tackled by Martin. And uh, Martin, uh, with, uh, with your comment about who uh, is actually benefiting from uh, from this system, uh, it seems you have struck a few chords. Uh, also in the, in the Q&A, uh, we will tackle this topic if you don't want to address it now, besides the, the point raised by uh, Waltraud. But, um, uh, so about the Q&A, actually, let me remind everyone that uh, you can use the function at the bottom of the, uh, our Zoom um, uh, the, the webinar platform. Um, and uh, uh, some of you have, I've seen have already started writing them up, and I will take them as soon as we finish these rounds, so be prepared. Um, Martin, um, the ECB, uh, like other central banks, uh, seems to be no longer concerned just with inflation and employment, but also worries, as you were pointing out also in some of your articles uh, recently, about climate change, inequality, more recently, digital currencies. Do you think the ECB is better equipped to meet these challenges compared to the Federal Reserve, for instance, because there is less political polarization regarding these challenges? And also feel free to tackle the, the question that uh, were raised, was raised by uh, Walter, if you feel like. I think you're muted, uh, Mark. I apologize. I'm so excited by the discussion that I forget to do this. I think this is a, a, a wonderful discussion. Um, I think that um, perhaps because I had to cram a lot into seven minutes, I wasn't as clear as I like to think I, sh I am. I didn't want to suggest, so this is in response to Valtra, I didn't want to suggest for a moment that Germany wanted the euro because it thought it would benefit from it. I followed the debate in the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s in Germany very closely. And it was pretty clear, uh, pretty clear, it was 100% clear that it was overwhelmingly a political decision taken in the teeth of the opposition of most of the economic establishment. Though I should say I knew and know, though many of them now dead, uh, many leading German business people very different from the uh, from the people at large or the or the the economic establishment associated, particularly with the Bundesbank, who were very keen on it because, to put it bluntly, they wanted to stop Italian devaluations. But the broadly speaking, Valtrad uh, is correct. Um, uh, they didn't want it, nonetheless. As I expected, so I was reflecting my position, not the German position. As I expected, once it happened. Um, it ran pretty well from their point of view, um, and I can't explain it at great length, but um, uh, in financial crises, and financial crises tend to happen with liberalized finance, um, uh, it's really far better to be a surplus country than a deficit one. Um, and if you knock out the exchange rate as an adjustment mechanism and impose all the adjustment on the, the deficit countries and consider them to be pretty wicked and immoral to boot, then you have both an economic and political problem. And I think it gets bigger partly because it's so obviously a blame game in this context and partly because the loss of familiar mechanisms of adjustment, however undesirable, like the exchange rate, which 
contrary to many views, I think worked rather well for Italy for a long time, you have other adjustment mechanisms and they don't work very well. And they didn't. So that's all I wanted to say about uh, the history. And it bears then on the, the other big thing, which I think is very, very important, um, because we're looking where they got to in the future, because they got through that crisis um, better than many feared. In now, I remember I wrote a column about this in 2012. I met a lot of people in Wall Street. and I wrote a column in response to them, all of whom assumed the Eurozone was going to die in 2012, all of them. And I read all columns saying it probably wouldn't happen because I didn't think Germany would let it happen. And that was correct. But they struggled through. Now, the point about the COVID crisis, which may help our future discussions, I don't, is that it was a crisis for everybody. It affected countries differently, but it was a crisis for everybody. Climate is the same. And uh, so it's, if you like, it's a homogeneous shock. And it's not a moral shock in the sense you can't say, you know, uh, anybody is to blame. Some people now say China is to blame. I'll leave that aside. But anybody is to blame for COVID. Um, It's the same with climate. So these, if you can't act collectively in response to a massive external shock for which nobody is to blame, then you're basically a completely dysfunctional union. And they show they aren't. That's very, very important. And I think very encouraging. And I also agree with her completely that you don't want to be the US. I talked about some aspects of this, but you need to show a willingness to ensure one another. And that means some fiscal mechanisms. Now, that has an implication of my third point about the EEC, uh, uh, ECB. I remain concerned about what would happen, which is what Paul talked about, if we get large heterogeneous shocks. And particularly, uh, you know, you get a crisis in which you can plausibly say some big country or other is to blame. And that could still be an enormous mess. And the fact that they acted together now doesn't prove it won't. And I'm not going to detail it. But if I express if, if, if uh, Italy at some point looked like Greece in 2015, it would be a big mess. I think that is true. Now, the final point I wanted to make, it comes to your point. Um, I am very concerned in a way it shows the undevelopment of the Eurozone, but it's a broader point because it actually applies to the UK and, and uh, elsewhere. There is a very strong desire, particularly now that the central banks have uh, got into the money printing business big time, let's use the colloquial term, that people who want something to happen about climate think, or inequality, think that the central bank can fix this. And my view is that's politically dangerous. It's not their responsibility. They have no political mandate for it. And these are intensely political decisions with profound sectoral effects. Uh, profound interpersonal justice effects. And uh, and they're not competent to do it either. And, you know, the climate capacity capabilities of the ECB are very limited. The fact that people want the ECB to do things and that somebody like Christine Lagarde, who's a very active person, wishes to respond is, to my mind, a failure of European politics. So to build on Valtraud's point, 
it seems to me that the next stage of this, and I'm not saying the EU should become like the US, it never will, obviously, but the next stage is to build on what happened, build on what happened to COVID in response to COVID, to create a more coherent capacity for political leadership in what are massive long-term political challenges for the EU as a whole and its member states. And climate is the biggest one of all, um, but there are, ma- there are many others. And I think the, 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 the view the politicians now have that they can leave everything to the ECB is actually disturbing because it's, as I said, not legitimate and cannot really be effective. Thank you very much, Martin. I think um, you made your points very clear and uh, uh, we all share some, so- some sort of concern also um, on these points. Although I, I presume that uh, uh, Paul might have a different view on this, but I don't want to monopolize my role as chair. Um, and as promised, I will now move into the Q&A part of our uh, event today. So um, as you can see, I also have, uh, uh, you have the chance to vote on the, on the questions. And uh, on top of the, of the list, uh, I see one of our alumni, Martin Fisher, you know, from our Political Economy of Europe program from last year. And it's a question to all speakers. And uh, it reads as follows. To be considered grown up, does the euro need to become an international reserve currency? Would that help the EU as a whole to emancipate itself from the US? Which steps would be needed for that? Um, I don't know whether we should start with this or you want me to collect also Altecos and other questions because I think it's, uh, uh, it's linked to this growing up phase, uh, which is another question from uh, Asger. Uh, Torfason uh, from uh, um, actually the Icelandic Fiscal Council, um, to which he is a member. And the question to the panel is, will the euro area be enlarged now that the euro is somewhat a grown teenager? Is it solid to grow up or uh, as is, or can it grow with additional siblings merged into it? Uh, and to clarify, I'm not asking from the viewpoint of the smallest currency of the world uh, in my little island, uh, Iceland, that is part of the European economic area, but rather from the point of the uncle Danish krona that is back to the euro, it's bigger and independent system, the Swedish krona, for example. Uh, we are flourishing with the uh, analogies and metaphors uh, this afternoon. So I'll, uh, um, on the growth and on the uh, question about international reserve currency, if any of our speakers would like to take the floor, please go ahead. I'm prepared to talk about the first. I have no view on Yeah, the Martin, please. I'll provoke Paul. Uh, I feel that as a, as a citizen, alas, of a country that left the EU, <laughs> I have no role in discussing the enlargement of the Eurozone, though it's pretty obvious when you look at some of the larger potential candidates, say Poland, there are some problems. Um, I, I was a little puzzled by this question because the Eurozone, the Euro already is a reserve currency. I think it is the second largest reserve currency. Obviously, it's well behind the dollar. I haven't looked recently. My memory is it's about uh, a quarter of world reserves. That might be wrong, but it's in that sort of order. So it has become a reserve currency. Um, 
Uh, and my view is that the role of a currency as a reserve currency uh, is actually a response largely to market forces. I mean, which include other governments, obviously, in the sense that the more trade uh, is conducted in this currency, the more finance is conducted in this currency, so the bigger your financial sector gets as part of the world, the more trusted this currency is, the more people will invoice in it, use it, trade it, and then naturally um, governments will increasingly use it. So if we looked at the history of reserve currencies, this is largely in response to the perceived soundness political backing, uh, financial development, and all the rest of it. And that's what happened when the dollar replaced sterling. Uh, and so it really depends, to my mind, on how the Eurozone itself evolves. Um, if I look at that, I don't see any alternative. I don't believe in the renminbi as a reserve currency. I've written a lot about that over the last 15 years, and I've been right in my judgment it wouldn't happen. But the development, obviously, uh, the more credible the survival of the Eurozone is, which we're talking about at core, the more likely it is to become a reserve currency. That's better than now than it was 20 years ago. The more developed the financial system and deep and liquid it is, the more likely to become reserve currency. That's still a, quite a big problem if you compare euro markets with dollar markets. Having, in, having a common financial instrument, the equivalent to the treasury, is a help. If you want a reserve currency, people want to hold an asset which is very liquid, very safe and backed by the state. That's clearly a problem for the eurozone because it doesn't have that and eurobonds aren't going to happen. So it probably won't happen uh, in the near future. But I would expect and of course, the eurozone economy is not growing relative to the world, but shrinking, which is also a problem. So I would expect the euro to remain number two currency unless the US commits suicide, perfectly possible, and the uh, uh, not to grow massively, but it is likely to remain, as long as the eurozone survives, the second most important uh, reserve currency for, not forever, but for the indefinite future. That's my judgment. For the indefinite future. Until China completely transforms itself into something totally unimaginable at the moment. Thank you. Alfred, you wanted to come in? Did, did you ask me? Or, or uh, yes, Paul. I, can, yeah. uh, I can briefly say I, I agree with a lot of what Martin said. I am sometimes a bit surprised that I has to have the impression that the US fights a bit to stay, so to speak, the hegemonic uh, reserve currency, while I think there is a bit of a difference between the fiscal or generally the elected part of politics and and uh, the Federal Reserve, because for the Federal Reserve, it clearly is a, is a constraint. It's not a degree of freedom to, to issue the world currency. We have seen that several times when the Fed would wanted to actually get out of this extremely accommodative stance, then there was some tantrum, some problem in emerging markets, and they had to wind down. Um, I think it would be extremely difficult for uh, the euro AI to play this role because of its diversity. If you then have to have an interest rate policy that is actually determined by your relationship with the rest of the world rather than internal conditions, um, that would be probably a step too far apart from, as Martin says, this is something that has to be accepted by market. You can force it to some extent, but not uh, completely and, and not decisively, I don't think. Um, just something on the uh, the second the question from the Icelandic Fiscal Council. 
Uh, if we talk about the, the Denmark, yes, of course, happily they would accept uh, Denmark. And de facto, it is a member of the, the euro area. It shadows the, the euro area so closely. Uh, I guess some would hope that Norway comes in with its big sovereign wealth fund. Um, Poland and the whole eastern side of things is, is another matter. And also the size of ever more smallish countries creates a problem with decision making in the in the ECB. So I have never had the impression that they're terribly keen to expand, which goes totally against what political economists always think, you know, more hegemony, more power, more uh, bigger realm is better. I think our decision makers are smarter than that. It creates a lot of difficulties as well. Thank you, Waltrud. Then let me turn to Paul. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe on the reserve currency, maybe add some dimension, uh, which is um, the fact that the, the dollar is not only a reserve currency at central banks, but it is also um, part of, in fact, it is the international payment system, right? Uh, um, many payments now, dollar payments, uh organized by the U.S. through the U.S. banking system. And that, as we have seen, gives quite a political leverage. Huh? We have seen it with sanctions vis-a-vis um, -vis Iran, that the U.S. can actually reach to European companies, punish European companies that try to deal with Iran. And that has to do with the fact that the, the whole international payment system is still dollar-based. You know, the words... <coughs> has to go to the U.S. banking system. And, and that's another dimension to a reserve currency. And in that sense, the euro is not a, a reserve currency. Of course, it is important in, in international trade, no doubt. And, and, and uh, as Martin said, it, it is the second in the world, but it, it does not have a payment system organized around the euro that potentially could give the kind of political leverage um, to, I don't know, in, in, in Europe, who would want to use it? That's another matter, right? Uh, in the US, it's very clear who would wants to use this kind of political leverage. It's unclear who would want to use that in, in Europe and whether there would be any consensus on, on how to use it. That's another matter. On the second question, yeah, I think further, uh, well, as you know, um, EU countries, <coughs> when they countries that Entered the EU, signed up to joining the Eurozone, right? Um, so we should expect more to come in. And, and that surely is a problem, right? Uh, if anything, this will increase the, the risk of future crisis. Um, and, and, and so it, it, it will increase the fragility of the Eurozone. It's not good news, but here we are. We have and done that, and, and um, at some point, many of these countries will want to join, and, and I'm not sure um, this is a good idea, but we have we are condemned to do it, so to say. We have written it down in treaties, and um, I think that's a, a very risky uh, future. Thank you very much, Paul. Yeah. Um, and thank you for 
also the points made by Marty the Vulture. I'm looking now at the, uh, the list of questions that we received. Um, I'll probably take a couple of questions that uh, um, are pretty much linked. Uh, the one by Ronald uh, Janssen uh, from Global Deal says, to what extent does keeping this progress in the euro growing up depend on the political situation in a key country, Germany in particular? Can one imagine a scenario where we go back on the flexibility we now finally have on both monetary as well as fiscal policy because of different political choices from the new government that is shaping up. Think of the return of the stability uh, pact discipline, for example. And because it's linked actually to this, uh, I have a question by Carmine Soprano that seems to have quite a few affiliations. Uh, World Bank economist, economic advisor to Italian G20s, uh, presidency, LSE, EMPA student, and also Martin for your loyal FT reader. He asks, uh, given political constraints on uh, prospects of fiscal union euro bonds, how about something like a permanent next generation EU program, maybe backed by a reform of growth and stability pact as a second best option to address structural limits of euro? So again, first question by Ronald Janssen on uh, uh, how much does will Germany then uh, determine the likely scenario that we see moving forward and uh, uh, if in a way given the political constraints is it uh, uh, how about something like a permanent next generation EU although that's also uh, due, um, constrained politically uh, and uh, maybe backed by a reform of growth and stability pact. Mm -hmm. I don't know who would like to start maybe Valtred uh, tackling the first question um, and then I yield the floor to the other speakers. So I am one who says one can overestimate the um, influence of Germany. I know one always looks at it and it is certainly an important country in all these debates, but the idea, and we looked at it from a data set that actually people in EMU choices have done with speaking of Truchlewski, who's actually in the audience, we did a paper where we analyzed to what extent is Germany clearly in this frugal four coalition against other coalitions. And Germany is actually not consistently in all the 47 EMU reforms that they looked at consistently on the side of the frugal ones. And it very often loses, in particular with the banking union. Germany was the outlier in terms of opposing almost everything. And, you know, we got a banking union. So the idea that Germany can block everything now that the euro area is there and that Germany has shown it will not let it fall is, I think, not true. At the same time, yes, we, if there is, as always in the EU, if they cannot find a new compromise, then the status quo is the default position. And we have still this uh, stability and growth pact. However, I had last week a debate on which um, uh, Vito Constancio was the e former e ECB vice president, and he said uh, the fiscal rules, even though they were never exercised in terms of never any punishment, they did play a role for the austerity policies uh, 2009-10 following. But at the same time, they worked in, in a very different way. And we have to look at why do they work, for which countries do they work? Is there sometimes perhaps also a willingness of governments to say, I use this as a leverage at home when I want to do a restraining fiscal policy? because. Nobody can tell me that the fiscal rules that have been hardened and reformed since their beginning 
have forced. Troika programs are not a different thing because there is the problem that you need bailout funding and then they have been brutal in their enforcement of austerity measures. But uh, for the rest, France, Spain, no, they haven't worked and they haven't forced anybody. So I would not consider what is your underlying assumption, Ronald Janssen. I wouldn't see that as such a big, big deal. Thank you very much, Baltrand. Um, let me turn to Paul then. Which question? So on the, on the question of uh, whether you think that uh, Germany will continue to have an undue weight uh, in the discussions that uh, uh, on the, ne um, the next reforms that will be adopted uh, and uh, whether you see actually as uh, next generation EU becoming permanent and uh, um, uh, the reform of the Growth and Stability Pact as a sort of second best option to address the structural limits of the euro. Well, um, I, I, oops, yeah, I'm unmuted. <laughs> um, I, I, I share um, Walter's view that one can easily um, exaggerate the, the German influence, but one should not also fall in the reverse trap, right? Um, on the fiscal rules <clears throat> um, and, and the debate that is going on now, should we go back to these fiscal rules? Huh? Because um, uh, for the moment, they, they are, have been set aside because of the pandemic, but uh, there is uh, the crucial date of next year, in fact, when, when these fiscal rules could very well be put into place again. And, and how will they look like? And, and, and that is unclear at this moment. Um, I suspect that their Germany will be quite important. Um, very much will depend, of course, also on the nature of the government in, in, in Germany, right? Which, what kind of coalition comes out uh, of these negotiations? So it's very difficult to to say at, at this stage, but, but, but surely these fiscal rules should, should be changed. I mean, um, let me just focus on, on one, right? Uh, which is the, the balanced budget rule, um, which um, is, is one of the most stupid rules one, one could have imagined, right? Where we say to governments that over the business cycle, you cannot um, add new debt, which also means that you cannot finance public investment by the issue of, of, of bonds, right? Which um, at this stage um, is, is, is certainly so self-destructive because we will need massive amount of public investment um, for taking up the challenge of, of the environment and what have you. And here at, at in the Eurozone, if we return to that, and um, there is some probability that we return to that, we will handicap ourselves to, to deal with these crucial issues, making it impossible to finance public investment by, by issuing bonds. Uh, it's also based on the confusion that we should only look at gross debt and not net debt, right? I mean, when governments... Um, do uh, public investment, they create both assets and liabilities. And if the return on these assets that they create exceeds the cost of borrowing, which today in most Eurozone countries is actually zero, then 
in the future, net debt will tend to decline. But the failure to see that is such an aberration and, and um, irrational. We, we, we really have to um, do something to make sure that we do not return to such stupidity because it, it would really handicap Eurozone countries to, to meet the challenge of the future. Well, let me just return to a point actually made by Martin just on this because you, you mentioned the expanding budgets and the, the need uh, to actually have those. Um, uh, Martin was saying how though an enlarged mandate in a way, an expanded mandate for the ECB, for instance, may turn out to be politically dangerous when it starts to tackle questions such as climate change, inequality. What's your view on this? Just to uh, um, follow up on what was said by Martin. Well, um, f- first of all, the treaty says that it is in the mandate of, of the ECB, right? Uh, when you look at the treaty, it says that the um, price stability is the primary objective of the ECB, right? But it, then it adds to that, provided, I'm, I'm not quoting literally, uh, provided price stability is not endangered, the ECB should pursue the economic policy objectives uh, of the European Union as set out in the treaty. And then you look at the article and it actually includes also the environment. So from a legal point of view, there is no enlargement of the mandate, provided what the ECB is doing there um, is not endangering price stability. So the question is, how can that be done? That's another issue, right? Uh, um, I have proposed something, this, this creation, I'm not, I'm not alone to have done this, uh, which is the following. The, the ECB has now a large portfolio of government bonds on its balance sheet and has, in fact, promised that um, it will um, keep that portfolio of bonds on its balance sheet unchanged. That is, it will not reduce it, right? It is actually adding today with the PEPP program, it's continuing to buy. But um, prior to the pandemic, it had in fact said that um, when bonds come to maturity, um, then it will buy new bonds in the secondary markets to replenish its bond portfolio. And here was my proposal, it said that, well, let the ECB then, instead of buying government bonds that have come to maturity, say, for example, Italian bond has come to maturity, instead of buying an Italian bond to substitute for the one that has come to maturity, let the ECB buy so-called green bonds. This could be bonds issued by the EIB in the context of a program of making public investment in the environment and, and what have you, and put that on its balance sheet, right? Now, um, that would be a, a way to create green money without actually increasing the money base because you would just keep it constant, right? If you think the, the, the stock of asset on the ba- balance sheet of the ECB is... Um, not inflationary at this stage. Well, it just changes the nature of the bonds, and um, it 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 would therefore not add to um, to to money base, and therefore do, would not add an inflationary impulse. Now, when you when you look through this and when you think through to this, 
what you find then is that in my example that I gave, the Italian treasury would now be forced to issue new bonds, right? Because as long as it was on the balance sheet of the ECB, it came to maturity, it was the ECB that would buy new Italian bonds in the secondary market, relieving um, the, 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 the Italian treasury to actually um, issue net new bonds, right? Now it would have to do it. But that's the beauty of the proposal. It would actually be a way to circumvent the Schwarze Null, to circumvent the balanced budget rule, whereby the, all these governments actually would have to issue bonds for every green bond that the ECB now has on its balance sheet, right? And so, in other words, you would circumvent this silly rule. And I'm saying, let's do it. Thank you, Paul. I think Martin will certainly have something to say about this. And we actually had a follow-up question from our audience, from one of our students, uh, Felix Zenhauser, uh, suggesting, in a way, trying to, to summarize his question is, but doesn't uh, one have to admit that the ECB quantitative easing policy has actually strongly favored portfolios with a high share of investment in environmentally damaging projects? And since ECB policies always have a political implication, should we push ECB even harder to introduce better regulation of environmentally friendly investment and counter the risk of greenwashing? So I'll... Uh, I'll uh, Turn it up, turn it to you. I accept, well, well, first of all, to go back, um, uh, it's to the early question which fits with this. I do think, perhaps this is very British, but I do think that um, where the EU as a political entity can define for itself a shared collective goal, which is a very good thing to have, and it's a good goal, such as dealing with climate change, which is clearly a very long-term program. You know, it's not going to stop in a few years. We're at the beginning of a journey which will take 30 years, and we hope to get much of it done in 20 years, and which involves enormous investments, many of them public sector investments. Then it does seem to me both desirable and sensible that the EU has means um, collectively to invest, which get outside, and I agree with Paul here, all these ridiculous rules, and because clearly it's going to involve a lot of investment, and which particularly help those countries which have, under those rules, limited fiscal capacity. I mean, it doesn't do much good if only the most solvent governments are able to make these green investments. So if how that is done is it's the second order, but the first order is to do this. Now, it seems to me second... This is where I do differ a bit, but ideally these are intensely political decisions and politicians should make them. This is perhaps a very British perspective. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, and therefore, you know, in Britain, I don't want the Bank of England to decide our climate policy. That's, that's what the government's for. Um, uh, and for that reason, I think the, the new economic, what is it called? New economic programme? Um, uh, I've, got, I've probably got it wrong. Uh, the fiscal plan that they have should be made indefinite. Yeah, I think that would be highly desirable, possibly climate linked, to be part of a long term program. And maybe there are some other issues similar to that where they should be spending, and that would be desirable. But to, uh, to, that's 2A. 2B, 
Um, yes, I can perfectly well see that with a constrained sovereign or a shadow or a, uh, a strange sovereign or whatever it is at the Euro EU level, you can you can ask the ECB to get involved in this because there isn't anything else. And I see uh, how Paul's idea might work. Um, though, well, I've got some technical questions, which we, we don't have enough time to discuss, what do, dealing with the stock of bonds, how that recycles into deficits and so forth. Um, but I do think it is a little problematic. As you said, the, the question I said, I want to make sure that the bonds don't involve greenwashing. Well, I've just been in, actually in a seminar last night with lots of uh, lawyers and bankers in the city on the very question. Well, deciding whether something is greenwashing is really hard. It's not a trivial question. Uh, deciding whether a bond is genuinely green or not is really hard. So if we want the ECB to be the dominant decider of this and the politicians accept it, then we must expect the ECB to create a capacity, which I don't think it has now, to do climate policy. Now, it may well be that the best solution is for the EIB to do that, for the ECB to solve that, to finance that. If the IB has that capacity, and I don't know enough about its current situation, and if the, the leaders of the Euro, of the EU are happy with the EIB doing this at scale, and we are talking obviously trillions here, um, then if the ECB is a funder and it fits into their monetary program, fine. But that means that the ECB does and must fit into the monetary program, and that's the core of it. Thank you very much, Martin. I think we have heard some uh, um, very important points made by all the speakers. And I have uh, probably one last question that comes from, uh, from the Q&A, uh, actually a, a couple more questions now. Um, uh, the first one that I would like to, uh, to probably, probably direct to Paul uh, is the question of reversibility of the Euro from Alan Simmons. Um, Lots of discussions of problems and measures needed if uh, Euro is to survive, but is there any alternative? Is there any way in which the Euro could be dismantled in anything approaching an orderly fashion, even if there was a will to do so? And uh, um, uh, so, Paul, I don't know if you have a direct answer to these on the question of reversibility or actually with speeches like the whatever it takes at the OMT, we have actually... Uh, the answer is very clear. No, there is no uh, way to do it in an orderly fashion. If it happens, it will be a disorderly, chaotic, um, whatever uh, fashion, right? Uh, I don't see how countries would sit around the table and say, now let's deconstruct the euro in, in like you you deconstruct the building yeah you have seen these these buildings that they put all the the dynamite dynamite in the building and then it beautifully collapses collapses um without um collateral damage right um that is not going to be um, the case if it comes to that right um, let's hope it doesn't uh, but one should not exclude this i mean Everything that man has made um, can be deconstructed and, and can disappear and, and probably will disappear. 
So, um, but yeah, it, it's we we have no there is no signs of signs of how to deconstruct the eurozone in an orderly fashion. Okay, so if uh, Martin and Walter don't have other points to add to these, I'll actually take the last question, two questions together, and then we wrap it up. So the first one is from Giulio Collazzo, who is an LSC alumnus 2018-19, and he's referring to the um, recent energy price uh, rise in global soup and also in the recent bottlenecks in global supply chain and the inflation surge related to the recovery of the economic activity. could this lead to the ECB tightening its monetary policy stance prematurely um, on the example, for instance, of the Fed's tapering announcement? And what would be the impact of a hurried money base contraction on the debt servicing capacity for EMU's member states with deteriorated fundamentals? Well, I'll actually let the, let the speakers think about these questions for a second because it's not a trivial one at all since it uh, considers a lot of factors, uh, bottlenecks, uh, um, inflation surge, and so on, uh, and what this means for the EMU's uh, debt servicing capacity. Um, I'll also take then the last question that we have from, uh, uh, again, Carmine Soprano is saying, with regard to the ECB strategic review, uh, do you see that as minor step forward from the uh, bank's 2% inflation targeting obsession um, and uh, um, probably a, a step away from the 2% inflation target obsession? Could that increase ECB credibility as lender or last resort vis-a-vis um, international market investors. Um, so I don't know who wants to take the first question on uh, the outlook uh, forward. And uh, the second question about the ECB strategic review, whether it actually goes in the right direction also vis-a-vis international markets and investors. Martin, you have thought a lot about it already. <laughs> well, the, um, it's very difficult. Right now, uh, central banks are all facing uncertainty. What I imagine, I'm sure Paul will say this, is that the ECB will try to avoid tightening as long as possibly can, looking at the composition of the current ECB Council and the situation in the EU economy. Um, And that's probably the right thing to do if, uh, even given their targets, given um, what I'll still likely to be temporary shocks, but not certain to be so. Um, The difficulty, of course, is in part um, a deeply political one. I mean, as as Paul helped to point out, uh, which I didn't want to respond to, the EU treaty is pretty clear what the primary goal of the ECB is. And though it can argue a way Uh, pretty large overshoots of temporary inflation as being, and it's obviously that's part of what it's tried to do with its reconsideration of its mandate, a part of it, um, to make it more symmetrical and uh, and obviously by implication, I think also to make it more uh, long-term, to focus more on core core inflation, focus on core inflation. Um, Nonetheless, if headline inflation 
um, remains elevated for long periods, I mean, well above target, and begins to start affecting how the labour market responds as the recovery proceeds, um, I think it would be impossible for them to avoid taking measures um, to tighten. And that, uh, um, and quite possibly more quickly than they really would want, because that is their dominant mandate. And at some point, the politics will become Mm -hmm. very difficult if they didn't do this. And given the uncertainty about where we are in terms of the shock and the longer term uh, behaviour of inflation and our economies in this unique recovery, because it's a unique shock, all this is going to be pretty difficult and nobody knows for sure what the right thing to do will actually be. But I think it could become really quite politically difficult for them if this overshoot continues. I can be sure that then Paul has a bit more time after that. Um, Julio, <clears throat> sorry, Julio, I, I do not quite share your concern that the central banks would go now into overdrive in tightening. I think they will err on the side of being accommodative because they don't want to rock the boat. We may have zombie banks that we don't recognize at the moment and nobody wants to kind of uh, create a big mess. So if anything, they will let they err on that side that raises then that other question by Carmine, um, namely whether the 2% obsession with inflation is overdone. And I think it is. I mean, it's part of the solution that we inflate some of the debt away uh, of public debt, but also perhaps the private debt. So the debtors need some support. The problem is always, can you keep it at 3%, 4%, which I think would not be a problem uh, for a while. And frankly, to the extent that the inflation is driven by more expensive energy prices, that should is actually part of the climate change agenda. And we say we should rein in this use of non-reproducible uh, resources that future generations may have a better use of than us uh, having driving around with all these gas castles. So that is my comment as to the militant cyclist here. Um, that should be led through, feed through, and that in some sectors of the economy, particular drug drivers, so logistics, transport, there is now higher, uh, there are now higher wages. Well, that is overdue. Uh, these guys live a terrible life and do not even get remunerated for it. But of course, if it becomes then a wider cost push, um, demand pull inflation, well, then they will have to tighten. But I don't think they will be very, very harsh. Thank you, Walter. Paul? Well, I, I think I, I share most of what has been said, but, but there is so much uncertainty, not only uncertainty whether this is something temporary huh, or more permanent, how this will affect the rest of the economy. Will, be, will we be going to a wage price spiral like, like we have seen in the 1970s? And then the greatest uncertainty is how will monetary authorities react? They will make policy mistakes. There is a rule that they will make policy mistakes, right? I have never known a period where no policy mistakes were made. And you usually don't know it ex ante, you only know it ex post. So we, we just don't know. It's, it's, it's perfectly possible that, as Walter said, they will say, no, it's not the moment to, to now uh, push the brakes, but you don't know. I mean, 
the, the perception that can exist at the central bank uh, at certain moments is such that they actually might do it. I mean, we don't know. So there's so much uncertainty um, that, um, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit um, disturbing, but that's the way it is, right? It, uh, one last point about the question that Carmine was raising. Um, yes, this new um, strategy uh, of the, the ECB goes in the right direction. I mean, many economists have been saying for years that this asymmetric 2% inflation target was not the right way to go about. I would add, like Walter was saying, we probably can afford a little more than 2%, right? Let me remind you that prior to the Eurozone in Germany, the average inflation in the post-war period from the 60s on until the start of the Eurozone was more than 3%. And everybody was saying, well, Germany is the example of, of stability by right? 3%. If today you say in Germany, Let's go for 3%. Many economists that I know in, in Germany would, would, would immediately uh, say, what? Hyperinflation, right? While they, they have had it for decades. So we have to calm down here and probably it, it would be better to go to rather 3% than 2%. But um, who am I? <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Um, I think uh, it's very difficult to make any forecasts at the moment uh, and to give a definition to what transitory is uh, and whether we are in reflation, stuck, uh, stagflation with such an unusual uh, recession, unusual recovery, uh, recovery that uh, we have witnessed. So um, it's been a great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity, I think, for both me uh, personally and also, I think, for all of you to listen to our speakers today. Um, thank you our panel um, for such an excellent discussion uh, and actually to all of you in the audience uh, for listening watching and actually for uh, asking great questions so um, if you'd like to learn more about about the European Institute uh, and uh, our anniversary events please head to our website and for now thank you and goodbye thank you everybody